You know, as you're raising children, my wife and I, Erin, we have three daughters. They're high school, middle school, and elementary school. And as you raise your kids, it feels like 90% of your job is just managing their behavior. You ever feel that way, parents? Especially their behavior in public, right? (laughs) I've seen uh, parents, and at times myself, have high-stakes negotiations in the aisles at Target. Anyone else ever been there? Where you are face-to-face with another will and another opinion, and another set of preferences, and you are negotiating their quiet exit from the building. (laughs) And you kind of swing between promises and threats, right? You yourself are good cop and bad cop all at the same time as you're trying to just not draw undesired attention towards yourself. It's like just trying to manage their behavior. I feel like sometimes... In our Christian lives, we think that is also our primary goal. Just manage our behavior. If we could just get it together for 24 hours. If we could just stop saying certain things and doing certain things and thinking certain things and believing certain things. And One of the misconceptions that often comes along with Christianity is that Christianity is primarily about behavior modification. You become a Christian so that you can learn how to live differently. And although different living is the outcome of following Jesus, it is not actually the primary goal in the Christian faith. We're not about behavior modification. We're about heart transformation. The real problem is never just what we do. It's always what's going on inside of our hearts. And so with that in mind, I want to remind you of our church's vision statement. It's on the wall as you walk out of this building every Sunday. But here it is on the screen for you. Our vision at Trinity is that we would see gospel transformation in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Area, Gospel transformation, radical change in our hearts, in every area of our lives. How many of you have some areas in your lives where you still need some transformation? You still need some change, some corners in your heart where you're still learning to let Jesus in and trust him with those things. So gospel transformation started in us, God, every area of our lives. But don't let it stop there. What he does to us, he wants to do through us. What he does for us, he wants to do for others. So not just in every area of my life, but in every life in our area. And we define area as anywhere that God gives us influence and voice. So you know what your area is? It's where you work. It's where you live. It's where you play. It's where you eat. It's where you shop. What would it look like to see gospel transformation in every life in those areas? That's the vision. That's what keeps us moving forward. So the question that I want to try and answer this morning from our text is, well, what is gospel transformation? And there's three things I want us to learn this morning about gospel transformation. Number one, what it looks like. Number two, what makes it impossible. And then lastly, what makes it possible. All right, so what it looks like, what makes it impossible, what makes it possible. So first, what does it look like? And the term that I'm going to use to describe what it looks like is gospel living, gospel living. So let's go to our passage this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1. This is a letter that the Apostle Peter has written to churches that are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey. They're in a time of suffering and struggle, and he's trying to encourage them. In verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is a future thing that will be brought to you. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, 
But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In these four verses, Peter is teaching us that gospel living involves our minds, our hearts, and our lives, the way in which we live. Our minds, our hearts, and our lives. Specifically, when he talks about minds, he says, prepare your mind for action and be sober-minded. To prepare your mind for action means be in a place where you can do something when you need to do something. It's not prepare your mind for thinking, prepare your mind for theory, prepare your mind for ideas. It's prepare your mind for action. And other translations actually say, gird up your minds. It's not a word that we use as often anymore, gird up your minds. And what it is referencing, what Peter was thinking of when he wrote these words, was an, orient, an ancient oriental custom where at this time the men and the women and even the soldiers would often wear these long robes. But when it was time for action, the robes would get in the way. And so when they needed to walk or walk fast or run or go into battle, they would gird up their robes. They would gather their robes up, they would pull them between their legs, and they would tie them around their waist so that they could run. And this is what Peter is saying. In our minds, we need to be ready to act. And the way to be ready to act is to prepare your mind. How do we prepare our mind? He gives us more clarity with his next words. He says, be sober-minded. Now, he's not talking about physical, actual drunkenness here, but what he's telling us is that there is a way in which our minds can be intoxicated, distracted, or disoriented by the things of life. Anybody able to relate to that? You ever just had something going on in your life, and it just, there's a, there's a phrase we use, you can't think straight. You can't see clear. And it has an intoxicating effect on your minds. And sometimes it's the bad things of life that fill up our minds and its worries and concerns. But it's not just the bad things of life that actually can intoxicate and addict our minds. Sometimes it's the good things of life as well. We get over-obsessed with the best things of life. There's a story that Jesus tells, one of his parables, where he talks about a rich man who's had an incredible year of work and success. He's got more crops than he has barns. And he goes to bed worried about what is he going to do with all his surplus. And there's more to this story than just this, but what I want us to see this morning is that it was the good things of life that had him worried. It was, what am I going to do with all my extra stuff? There's a way in which the best things in life can distract us, make us clearless, a lack of alertness, a laziness of the mind. And so what Peter is saying is that gospel living, to actually live in a, a line with the truth of the gospel, means that your mind is marked by preparation and purpose. There's preparation and there's purpose. Preparation without purpose is useless. What's the point of it all? To do all the preparation but to have no purpose behind it is useless, it's fruitless, it's empty. Purpose without preparation is dangerous. It's reckless, it's scattered. To want to do something important but not to prepare yourself to do that thing is reckless. But preparation with purpose, that's meaningful living. As a church, we're reading through First and Second Peter together using the YouVersion Bible app. There's about 100 of you reading every day, and every day some of you are leaving comments, and it's not too late to join, by the way, if you want to join us. Um, but this past week, when we were reading this specific passage, Robin Giles, who's a leader in our church, she said this. She wrote these words. She said, preparing our minds for action reminds me that we have work to do. Come on, Christians. We have work to do. 
This morning in the 8.30, before our first service, we had a huddle at 8.30 and we prayed together. And Ross Anderson said that the Lord had placed on his heart this reminder that the Lord prepares the harvest, but we go into the harvest fields and we work the harvest fields. And that's a metaphor for people who need to come to know the love and grace and truth of Jesus. There's a work for us to do. And listen, if our minds are not prepared and if we don't have purpose and we're over-distracted, disoriented, and intoxicated by the things of this world, both the bad and the good, we're going to miss the opportunities to do what God has called us to do. And what actually is at stake is the souls of individuals and the kingdom of God being seen here in clay as it is in heaven. So minds. But then Peter goes on to talk about our hearts. Hearts filled with hope. Hearts filled with heaven. He says, preparing your mind and being sober, both of those verbs are actually participles, which are attached to the main imperative verb in the text, which is set your hope upon the grace of Jesus that will be revealed. So we prepare our minds, we are sober in our thinking so that we can set our hope fully, consider and concentrate on the grace that is to come. You know, hope is a powerful thing. Powerful. There's a man named Viktor Frankl. He was an Austrian psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor. He wrote a very well-known book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in this book, he tells the story that when he was in the concentration camps, one of the fellow prisoners came to him one day and was excited. He said, I had this incredible dream last night. I think it's real. And in this prisoner's dream, someone or something came to him and said, it's all going to end. Your suffering is going to end. This is going to come. You're going to get free. And, and the date is March 30th. And so this prisoner's heart was so filled with hope that he had heard somehow that March 30th would be the day that they would all get out of the concentration camps and be free. And then March came, and as the month went on, it became evident that nothing was going to change. Nothing was going to change. And then Victor says that on March 29th, the day before he thought, this guy thought that he had heard that they would be free, on March 29th, this prisoner suddenly fell ill. On March 30th, this prisoner became delirious and lost consciousness. And on March 31st, despite no other seeming to, seemingly physical issues, this prisoner died. What killed this man? I'm sure there were many contributing factors, but his point is one of them was hopelessness. Hopelessness. He died hope, out of hopelessness. Christians are not hopeless. It doesn't matter what's happening in this world. It doesn't really matter what's happening in our lives. It doesn't mean we're unaware of those things. We're not like ostriches burying our heads in the sand. But those things are not the ultimate source of our hope. Our hope is on the grace of Jesus that will be revealed when we see Jesus face to face. And so here's what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian, you are future-oriented but fully present. Both of those things. You are future-oriented. Your hope is not in what, who's sitting in the White House. Your hope is not in how much money is in your bank account. Your hope is not in what's happening in America. Your hope is not in a sports team, amen. But your, your hope is in the grace of Jesus to be revealed. And because you have that certainty of hope, it allows you to be fully present here with minds prepared for action. My favorite soccer team played this morning. I'm an English Premier League fan. My team is Liverpool. And while I was preaching the first service, they were playing. I told the first service, what a sacrifice I'm making to be with you this morning. Well, I know they won. I already know. I saw the score. They won 3-1. to one, And I'm going to go home this afternoon. And I'm a, I'm a big enough fan that I'm going to rewatch 
the whole match. If they had lost, I wouldn't watch a second of it. But they won, so I'm going to rewatch it. But I know what happened because they were up one nothing, and then the other team tied it. West Ham tied it to make it one to one. Now, if I was watching it live when West Ham tied the match, I would have lost some of my joy, right? Because I don't know what's coming. I would have been like, oh, man, I hate it. We gave up the lead. We had the lead. We gave up the lead. I'll be yelling at the defenders and all this sort of stuff. But I already know the final. It doesn't matter when West Ham scores that goal because Liverpool's going to score two more goals, and they're going to win 3-1. to one. And here's what it's actually going to allow me to do. Knowing the outcome of that game allows me to take every moment of the game in fully as opposed to being worried and anxious about what's going to happen next. And what Peter is saying here is that knowing the hope of Jesus that is certain and before us and waiting for us on that day, it actually allows us to walk through things that other people can't walk through without losing their joy. Doesn't mean, we're, doesn't mean we're unaffected, right? Doesn't mean we're unaffected. We're very much affected by the things in this world, but it means we don't lose our way. We don't lose our deepest joy and our deepest hope. We're future-oriented, but we're fully present. So what happens when our minds are marked by preparation and purpose? What happens when our hearts are filled with the hope of heaven? You know what happens? We live differently. Peter says, you will live as obedient children. I'm glad he didn't say obedient servants. I'm glad he said obedient children because it speaks of not just rules, but relationship. We obey not just God said, here's what you have to do. We obey because he's adopted us into his family, and he's made us his father. And then Peter drops the bombshell in this passage, the part that I almost wish wasn't in here, when he says, be holy as God is holy. He doesn't say be holy as our culture defines holy. He didn't say be holy as your religion or your church defines holy. He doesn't say be as holy as the holiest person you know, or be as holy as the person sitting next to you this morning. Be as holy as you want to be. Be as holy as you decide to be. Be as holy as you can be. I, I wish kind of he had said that, but he says, be holy as God is holy. Now, what hope do you and I have for that, to be holy as God is holy? And it brings us to our second point, which is what makes it impossible? Why is this so hard for us? And when we talk about holiness, by the way, let me just say this. We're not just talking about being set apart from things. We're, being talk about, we're talking about being set apart for things. I say this often because I think Christians misunderstand holiness. We usually think of holiness as just being set apart from things, bad behaviors, bad attitudes, bad beliefs, get away from that stuff. But God's not just setting us apart from stuff. He's setting us apart for something. There's, there's something before us that needs to, that we are, we are destined to do. And that's part of being holy. Be holy as God is holy. Now, second point this morning is what makes it impossible? And I'm going to call these gospel values. Gospel values. You know, what we value actually determines what we live. Every decision you make is a value-based decision. You've never made a decision that's not based upon something that you value. Some of you, when you go out to eat, you value quantity over quality. And some of you value quality over quantity. And that, and that makes a decision for you. Or you're like me and you, you look for both. You want quantity and quality. But for some people, a good meal is, is more about your, how much did you get? Is, are the portions big? And then for other people, it's like, I don't need a big portion. I just need what I eat to be great, right? So people disagree. And it's a, what is it? It's a conflict of values. And so what makes gospel living impossible is when we don't have gospel values. Peter's saying, live in line with the gospel, but then he goes on to unpack what the gospel values are, and here's the conflict. So let's go back to the text, verses 17 through 19. Peter keeps going. He says, 
If you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, here's our key phrase, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. They're not geographically or nationally or ethnically exiled, they are spiritual exiles. Knowing that you were ransomed, bought back from the futile ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So here's what I wanted to see this morning. I'll be quick with this. There are three values of the world and three gospel values that often conflict within our hearts. And I think you're going to be able to identify with these. And the first one is this, the fear of man versus the fear of God. What do you value more? Man's opinion, woman's opinion, humankind's opinion, or God's opinion? Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of exile. Now, we often misunderstand what the fear of God is. Sometimes we think the fear of God means I'm afraid he's going to get angry with me and crush me. That's not the fear of God. It's very different. My wife, Erin, uh, one of her greatest fears is spiders. She hates spiders. I came home the other day. She had done all this sort of like work in our backyard, moving all these things around that were kind of like, you know, just piles of old leaves and, and, and sticks and stuff. And I went to the backyard and I saw one pile of sticks left and I knew what the issue was. I knew that when she had reached for that pile of sticks, she had seen a spider. And so she left it for me, and I was fine to do it. Spiders are not my thing. Rodents are my thing. But spiders are not my thing. And so here's, here's, a th here's what I've learned about my wife when it comes to her fear of spiders. Two things. Number one, I could walk into a room, and there could be spiders in every corner of the room, and I don't see them because I'm not afraid of them. I'm not focused on them. I'm not thinking about them. But if Aaron walks into a room of this size and there's one spider in one corner, she will find it. She will know it's there. She's so aware of it because of her fear of it. But then the second thing I've learned is that once she knows where that spider is, everything she does from that point forward in that space is in reference to what that spider is doing and where it is. And God forbid you can't see it anymore, and then she's not going to stay in that space. The fear of God means this that we are always aware of him, whatever space we're in. Wherever we go, wherever we're at, we have this constant awareness of him because we think of him first and foremost. But also the fear of God means this, that we don't do anything without reference to what he's doing. We don't say anything without reference to what he is saying. So fear of God is more of an awareness, an alertness, a, a, a focus, a reverence of God. And we will live with one fear or the other, the fear of man or the fear of God. We live with one or the other because every single one of us has to get a sense of who we are from something outside of ourselves. We can't actually give it to ourselves. And so we're either going to look to human beings to give it to us, and if we do that, we're going to fear their opinions and their thoughts most, or we're going to look and trust in God for those things. And if we do that, then we will fear and trust God. But we will either follow their ways or follow God's ways. This past week in our read together, Jesse Lorenzo said this. She said, when Christ calls you to follow him, you drop all of your excuses and you get out of your comfort zone. When we fear God most, that's what happens. We, we follow him, we drop our excuses, and we get out of our comfort zone. Fear of man versus fear of God. The second conflict of values that we see here is silver and gold versus the blood of Jesus. Peter says, you've been ransomed. And to be ransomed means that you were bought back, that you were indebted and somebody paid the price for you. A price was paid to set you free. That's what the word ransom means. And how do you know how much you're worth to God? Well, what was the price that God paid to bring you free? 
to make you free and to give you freedom. Well, it wasn't perishable things. It wasn't even the best of perishable things. Peter talks about silver and gold because it's valuable and it's worth a lot. But Peter's teaching us here, it's the preciousness of Jesus' blood. The blood of Jesus that sets us free from the forgive, that sets us free from our sins, cleanses our consciences. It's his blood through which we gain bold access to God in worship and prayer. It's the blood of Jesus through which we are progressively cleansed from our sin. We are able to conquer the accuser of the brethren. Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, and 1 Peter 1:19. We're rescued out of a sinful way of life because of the precious blood of Jesus, that Jesus shed his blood to ransom us. And I know that maybe if this is a new thought to you, it's a little barbaric, it's a little archaic, why blood? But yet blood is because it's the most precious thing any of us have within us. We can't live without it. And from the very beginning of, of history and scripture, without the shedding of blood, there is no covering for our sins. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, there had to be a, a sacrifice of an animal so that skins could be provided to cover their shame and their nakedness. And throughout the Old Testament, it was the offering and the sacrifice of animals that the blood would cry out and speak out for the forgiveness, the sacrifice, the costliness, to, to speak to the costliness of our sin against God. And then we get to the cross where finally we see Jesus shedding his precious blood. Here's what Peter seems to be saying. Do not live your lives as though you not, as sorry, do not live your lives as though your ransom was not precious. Here's what Peter's saying. Don't forget the price that was paid for you. The blood of Christ has redeemed you from a useless and meaningless and futile way of life. So do not live your new life as if the ransom price was anything less than glorious and priceless, the precious blood of Jesus. And then the last thing that we see in terms of gospel values that conflict with our own hearts, we actually have to go to the end of the chapter, verses 24 and 25. It reads this way. All flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is the good news or the gospel that was preached to you. And here's our third value conflict. It's grass and flowers versus the word of God. Now, what does grass and flowers mean in this passage? Grass and flowers speaks of human glory and greatness and that it will fade and fail and fall away. One of the things of having daughters that are teenagers now is I get to watch some of the movies that I liked watching growing up with them. So I take them back and they get to see some of the movies from the 80s that I love. They get to watch the original Karate Kid with me and Goonies and stuff like that. And every now and then we're watching a movie from the 80s and we see an actor that's still acting. And you look at them and you're like, oh, they're so young and they're so vibrant and their faces look normal. And it's just like, they're just, you know. And then you see them now and you realize all the glory fades. It all goes, I see it my my favorite athletes growing up. I see them now, you know, out in public walking around. They don't look anything like they used to look. And this is what Peter is saying. You're either going to base your life on the glory of this world or you're going to base your life on the word of God. And the grass and the flowers fade away, but the word of God remains forever. And so what makes it impossible for us to embrace gospel living is when we do not have gospel values. You'll never live out the gospel if you don't have the values of the gospel, if you don't fear God more than you fear man, if you don't value the precious blood of Jesus more than the silver and gold, the things of this world, and if you don't see that the word of God endures forever while everything else passes away. And then lastly this morning, I'm going to ask Pastor Anthony to join me. What makes it possible? And what makes it possible? I'm calling it gospel order. And I'm not using this word order like order in the court. I'm also not using this word order like rule and reign. 
I'm using this word order like sequence. So there's a, there's a board game, actually, that my family plays called Sequence. I don't know how many of you guys have played Sequence before, but my mom and Bill and my kids, we love to play it. And Sequence basically means that there's a specific order in which things must be done to get the result that you want, right? There's a correct sequence of events. And we talk about gospel order, gospel sequence. If we're ever going to have gospel values, we have to understand the order of how the gospel works. So let's finish this passage, verse 20. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding work of God, or word of God. And what I want us to see here is this phrase, foreknown before the foundation of the world. Before you were aware of yourself, before you were aware of your lostness, before you were aware of your problems, before you were aware of your need for Jesus, God was making a plan to save you. This is the sequence. We don't call out to God first, and then he responds to us. God is not reactive God is proactive. He made a plan from before the foundations of the world to save you. And so the gospel order is simply this. God's work first, always. God's work first. And then we respond. Through Jesus, it says, we are believers in God. Verse 21, through Jesus, we are believers in God. Not through your efforts, not through your good works, not through your righteousness, not through your church attendance, not through your moral living, not through your giving of time, talent, and treasure. Those things are all important, but those are not the things that make you believers in God. It's through Jesus that we are believers in God. It's all possible because of Jesus. The gospel order is Jesus first, always. He acts on our behalf, and then we respond with our lives. This past week in our Read Together, Greg Krupa wrote these words. He said, when people believe that all is lost and there's no hope, Jesus restores hope because, listen, he is hope. And then he wrote these words, Jesus never gives up on people. I hope some of you hear that this morning. Jesus never gives up on people. doesn't matter what you've done and where you've been. Jesus has not given up on you. So what's the gospel order? Having been redeemed, we are freed now to live a life of glad obedience. This is our true joy. Having been loved so perfectly and so well, despite the fact that we don't deserve it and we haven't earned it, our delight is to love in return. And here's the key phrase. Listen to this. We are not loved because we obey. We obey because we are loved. That's the gospel order. A lot of times people get this wrong in Christianity. They think if I obey, then God will love me and notice me and let me in. That's not the gospel. The gospel is God has thrown open the doors through the person and work of Jesus Christ to bring you in. And because you have been ransomed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, now live lives that honor God. It's the gospel order. We don't work our way in. We get brought in and then we worship our way forward. The call to obedience and holiness is rooted in the realities of grace. We must never reverse the order. Otherwise, we'll fall into legalism, self-righteousness, and works righteousness. So, gospel living, it's not possible unless we have gospel values. Gospel values, we'll never have them if we don't understand the gospel order. But as we understand the gospel order, it shapes our hearts to value what Jesus values so that we can live lives that honor him. And you know what the result of all that is? Gospel transformation. 
in every area of our lives and in every life in our area. Let's pray together this morning.